Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early-stage climate tech globally. This episode is led by Jenny, the GP of Climate Capital's BioFund. And today we are delighted to have Nika, the founder of Ruby Laboratories, with us. Welcome, Nika. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. To get us started, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. Um, so I'm Nika, co-founder and CEO of Ruby. My background's in materials engineering and business. Um, I founded Ruby with my twin sister, actually. And we both came from really deep technical backgrounds, but always being really inspired by nature. Um, so I got my start when I was 15 years old, published my first paper in artificial photosynthesis at a national lab here in the Bay Area. And that was really the first spark for me of being able to see how using science to learn from nature and apply that to our most critical human-based systems could really move the needle towards building a planet-positive uh, society. And I specifically was really interested in energy and manufacturing as two just really big critical industries um, for us to see how we could make them less detrimental on the planet. Um, and that sort of led me through 10 years of uh, scientific research in the material space around energy storage, um, energy materials like solar and computational materials for how we could discover new materials faster. And after studying material science at Berkeley and a few years in industry, that's sort of when I wanted to get back to this core passion of uh, climate-related deep tech for uh, improving the world. And that's when me and my twin sister teamed up and, and we developed the technology behind Ruby. Would you share the story of how you decided to team up with your twin sister to start this company? Yeah, so when I set out to come up with Ruby and really frame the problem. It, it was just me. And I had no idea that I'd end up working with my twin, actually. And we never knew we'd build a company together or anything like that. Um, she was uh, at Harvard Medical School. And she has a really deep tech background in, um, in bioengineering. And so I was originally just, you know, bouncing ideas off of her of, um, you know, this concept that ended up developing into Ruby around using enzymes uh, to power reactions, capturing CO2 and making materials. And she has uh, a lot of experience in enzymes and, and bioengineering. And so we just started working together. We, we just spent a summer um, prototyping the technology. And at that point, she was sort of just like helping me. Um, and then we realized like, it, it works and it could really change the way that the world does things. And that's sort of when it all clicked together. Um, like we knew we're always great at working together. And then for this, it was so clear. Our skill sets were perfectly aligned and um, we were able to like team up in this mix of materials and bioengineering to create a company and a solution that captured both of our passions in improving the world. Not a lot of founders get to say they build a company from the ground up with a family member. <laughs> what is it like for you doing this with your twin sister, Leila? Yeah, 
We found it to be really positive, actually. And I, I feel like, you know, different sibling relationships can can obviously be different. Ours is a really strong, uh, positive one. Um, we've always been building things together since we were kids. We you know, started a jewelry business and random side projects. And we, were, we always thought, you know, maybe sometime in the future, we'd uh, do some fun passion projects together, like open a restaurant or a boutique or something. <laughs> and so we we were always in the habit of working together on on cool things, but we never knew it would be for our, our career. Um, and I think because it's so hard to start a company in general, and it's such a journey, like a roller coaster of up and downs, ups and downs. I think it's actually been so helpful to do it with someone that I really trust completely um, more than anyone else in the world. <laughs> and so it's it's a really great pairing, actually. Um, and one thing I like to say is that we we've learned how to argue really efficiently, so we can like <laughs> you know get to the bottom of something, figure it out, and then just go back to working together on it. And I think that's the case for a lot of siblings. You're just used to arguing on something, landing on an outcome, and then just moving forward. And uh, you know immediately you're back to being like great friends. <laughs> so I think it's a really unique relationship that's actually worked for us. Right. You spent the past decades working with one another, mm-hmm. uh, figure out how to best communicate with your sister as well as how she thinks. Um, that's amazing. Absolutely. Where did you grow up? We grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area um, in uh, North Bay. So we were actually born in um, wine country, grew up there, always being really... Um, immersed in nature and then we moved to Marin at a pretty young age too with um you know the beautiful redwood forests and nature surrounding us where we'd spend a lot of our free time outdoors um and i think reflecting on it we've realized that being surrounded by so much nature and a nature focused community like people who really care and spend most of their time in nature um made us uh, really passionate about climate, the space, protecting our natural systems, and uh, ultimately inspired by the science behind nature. And that's why we both became scientists eventually. And then we've been focusing on how we can leverage science um, from the planet uh, in a non-natural system. So it was a, a really cool um, kind of you know, childhood experience to then map into our current careers too. Is there anything unexpected about you or your sister or both of you that you would like to share with us? <laughs> um, I guess one one like fun fact uh, from my background is um, when I was in college, I was on this um, engineering team where we build uh, fully solar powered vehicles from scratch and, you know, design and build them. Um, And we're talking full size vehicles with the license plate and everything like fully solar powered battery with a nice battery pack, like same range as a Tesla. They were very cool cars made out of carbon fiber and and everything um, that we made fully from scratch on this team at Berkeley um, called CalSol, the solar vehicle team. And I was actually the driver. So I uh, was able to actually race this car on a Formula One racetrack. 
um, in Texas, Circuit of the Americas, and win first place. So that's one of my favorite memories. <laughs> Amazing. That sounds incredible and so much fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It was also like my first experience leading a large engineering team and building something and then you know, getting it out there in the real world. So that was also a big inspiration for me wanting to become a founder. How does that impact you as a founder of Ruby? Yeah, so definitely a lot of my experience leading the solar car team at, is directly related to leading a deep tech company now. I think a lot of it is um, having the experience of leading through really challenging situations, um, high pressure, um, time crunch, sort of low resources and low people resources, um, which is kind of the same thing as a startup, really. Um, and so in that case, you know, we had a team of scrappy students building something for the first time that had never been done before this specific, you know, design for a solar powered car, um, with, you know, trying to hit some, some certain, um, operational milestones and, um, all of those situations, I think really go into a general toolbox of leading a team of cross-functional people, you know, engineers, business people, and then doing something new for the first time. Um, you know, the you try something, the car breaks down on the freeway and you need to figure out how you're going <laughs> to fix the, the back wheel and get it back on the road. <laughs> so it's sort of like these intense situations that really force you to um, focus and, um, you know, put all your resources towards the right things um, to be mindful of making the most progress with the least amount of resources. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there were some great lessons in there that I always sort of, they always come up in just general things with building a company. Tell us about Ruby Laboratories. What does it do and what problem are you trying to solve? We are focused on building the next era of manufacturing and we call this era the symbiotic era. We believe that you know, the next era of manufacturing needs to be symbiotic with the planet. It needs to be carbon negative, water and land neutral to allow us to, as a uh, planet, hit our sustainability targets um, and also be able to create the prosperity and abundance for people um, so that your prosperity and abundance is uh, driven for both people and the planet at the same time. And how we do that is we've developed a new um, manufacturing platform technology that's based on enzymes. Uh, so it's a fully enzymatic system that's able to capture CO2 from manufacturing facility flue gas on one side and then turn that CO2 into complex high value products um, that today we get from nature. Things like cellulose, lipids, starches, proteins. Um, with our first focus being cellulose for the textiles industry. And so um, what we're doing now at Ruby is uh, we, we're building this platform and producing cellulose to make a common category of uh, fabrics for the apparel industry, which today are very uh, energy intensive and CO2 intensive that we can make at the same quality levels, but through a process that's actually carbon negative. Um, and that's that's our focus today. So far, we've been able to um, you know, scale up our system on the bench, scale up to our first pilot system, 
um, be able to produce our first yarns and textiles made from CO2. And the next steps are really to, um, with our manufacturing partners and with our brand partners, like retail brands, test end-to-end this process actually, you know, in real industrial conditions mm-hmm. to then be able to scale up further. So yeah, that's that's generally how it works. And often we get the question of, you know, how does that even work? How can you turn CO2 into a textile? Um, yeah. It seems like magic. <laughs> I think the best way to think about it is we're really mimicking what trees do. So when you think of a tree, it breathes in CO2 and then it uses enzymes in its cells to take that CO2 and build up um, these molecules that then become its trunk and branches and leaves, these structural polymers that are called cellulose. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what we're mimicking, but just in industrial reactor settings. Um, so we're you know, using kind of a similar concept of a pathway of enzymes that can take a CO2 gas and turn it into these solid polymers that are the same ones that we get from trees today. Um, but in this case, there's no deforestation required um, and the energy intensity and CO2 intensity of manufacturing those products is completely eliminated. Um, plus, we're also removing carbon and putting it into a solid product. Um, and that's sort of, I think, a good way to visualize it and that was something that always growing up really blew my mind that trees come from air um, and they, you know, grow from a seed into this massive tree and it's, you know, the carbon is coming from the air. And that's something that's always captivated my scientific mind. It is incredible to think about how biology has these intricate machineries to make things that we take for granted things mm-hmm. that we see on a daily basis. But if you think about at the molecular level, how complex these materials are, is is mind-blowing. Absolutely. And that's been one of the big things that we've been able to figure out um, for the first time to make this system possible. Because going from something simple like a CO2 molecule all the way up to a complex sugar and then a polymer of sugars, which is what cellulose is, it takes a lot of um, kind of modifying that CO2 molecule, several reactions, there's energy inputs needed, et cetera. And those are some of the key technical things that we figured out at Ruby to make it possible to bring together a complex system of enzymes and um, enable that to work in non-natural conditions and then in a larger reactor system. How did you go about picking cellulose as your product of focus for Ruby? It's definitely uh, really focused on um, you know the business and the market, but also the um, impact potential. So first looking at the market, I think it's important when you're scaling a product for the first time or you know choosing your beachhead market as a startup, that you choose a market that has uh, incredibly high demand already um, for something that that you can make. Um, in our case, the fashion industry is one of the first movers in the sustainability space in terms of at least trying to adopt new solutions. And that you can really see over the last five years, brands have been some of the biggest corporations to adopt, quote unquote, more sustainable materials 
even though like there haven't been solutions, real solutions in the fashion industry. So that's led to a lot of greenwashing. But I think the intent is so apparent. And that's what we've been seeing too, as we partner with large retail brands today at Ruby. Um, So it's just a market that's very clearly already been moving and desperate for solutions um, in this space and already paying money to find solutions. I think that can be really helpful in having a clear market. That's not something that you need to fully build from scratch. If it it, it already exists, that's a great beachhead market. Um, mm-hmm. And then also the, the price points in the industry. Um, that's also important. You don't or we didn't want to choose an initial market that would just be a commodity um, right. or something that uh, would be really hard for us at the smaller scales to be able to commercialize and um, kind of support the company. And so apparel is one of those things that, you know, the margins are uh, a lot higher for materials uh, to end product than a lot of other industries like food, for example or packaging or other you know materials that you could choose. Um, and then the last thing was the sustainability factor. Uh, everything we do at Ruby is really focused on creating a massive impact in this next era of manufacturing. And so when you look at the top three most CO2 polluting supply chains on the planet, it's uh, food, building materials, and then textiles. And so for us, textiles was the clear um, kind of middle of the Venn diagram of hitting the business case and the impact case. And it's ended up being a a really um, effective market for us in terms of the pilots we've been able to sign and and work with. That makes a ton of sense. What's the biggest moment for you so far with building Ruby? I think one of the things that was... um, just a really beautiful moment was this summer, we actually, um, we made our first uh, fabric from CO2. And that was just such an incredible milestone for the whole team. Um, And it required the whole team coming together, really scaling up our production capabilities, making things work, and uh, from our cellulose producing our first fiber and then getting to yarn and textile stage. And it was just such a massive milestone to see this technology go from you know, where we were a year ago at the test tube scale to being able to scale up a production system and make a real physical fabric for our brand partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a huge milestone that the team was able to prove for the first time. And uh, it was just really like a clear exciting beautiful moment for me as a founder seeing it go from an idea to like a real first product a real physical product tangible in the hand Mm -hmm. what does that fabric look and feel like and how did you use it yeah so the textiles that we're making are actually the same ones that are already used in the industry Um, so the top three most common fabrics the first one is polyester then it's cotton, and then it's this family of textiles called man-made cellulosic fibers. The more common name is maybe rayon, lyocell, viscose. Mm-hmm. Um, these are textiles that are about a third of um, the makeup of like uh, products that a, comp- a brand would be selling. Um, and so that is actually the exact textile that we're making. Um, so the 
the aim is that the you know hand feel all of the performance properties would be the same as that standard textile. And so that's what we were really focused on this summer and with our future developments is um, showing that our fiber can go through industrial equipment, be made into yarn and then made into textile. Um, and that was a really fantastic milestone because it showed that uh, we can do that with uh, the material we're making. It can go through industrial equipment and be a drop-in um, solution. And next, we're really getting more quantitative on characterizing the properties of end yarn and, and textile. Um, we've done that for the fiber stage so far and then proven that it can go through yarn and fabric. And then the next stage is with these pilots with brands, um, you know, further characterizing end products and then making garments and scaling up from there. Like the dropping solution is much easier to get brands on board and start selling your product because there is already a demand there. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things that um, for apparel and I'm guessing other industries too, is if you can have as low um, you know, adoption barrier as possible, if you're already making the same product that they're using, that's the best that, that you can sort of aim for. Um, because often to get a new material fully through all testing and validation so that the brand feels comfortable using it for end consumers, um, it can often be a much harder process. So that's why we're focused on a product that already exists to start and with a clear existing market. Would you share with us a story of one of the biggest problems that you have overcome at Ruby? <laughs> There's been so many. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think one of the and the big focus for us moving forward too is always you know being able to validate at one scale and then 10x jump to the next scale, validate everything again at that scale and then keep doing those jumps and scale. And so that's also been the trend um for this year as well. We started um you know the year at milliliter scale um, we validated the full end-to-end -end system. Then we were able to do 10x jumps, then more 10x jumps. And what we realized is um, as much as you can try and predict all the things that will maybe change as you scale up, um, there's only a limited amount that you can fully predict. And um, you know, sometimes, or in most cases, you know, you try and mitigate all the risks that you can predict. And then you just need to test it at the next scale and see what new variables are coming into play with a larger reactor system. And this is something that you know, we've just seen at every scale that we need to make sure that we have the R&D time to just study the system, make sure we can sort of get to a level of optimization that we're comfortable with before jumping to the next scale. Um, and so like there's interesting things with enzyme-based systems versus let's say fermentation um, or other systems that, that are different. Um, there's a lot of benefits to enzyme systems. And then some of the challenges are, um, you know, if you have a pathway of enzymes, you want to make sure that you don't have product buildup at any one step because it can then slow down your next reaction. Um, so it's just sort of managing all your enzyme reactions in your system to make sure that they all are moving efficiently forward towards your product. Um, right. And so that's been one of the key focuses that, that our team has been working on. Um, and, you know, enzyme-based systems are, are used pretty widely at large scale. 
for high fructose corn syrup production and wastewater treatments. And a lot of big industries use it at tens of thousands of liter scale. But there's always new learnings when you're building a more complicated system or introducing something new for the first time, like delivering you know, CO2 into that system or energy into a system directly to power these enzyme reactions. So definitely a lot of learnings along the way. The nice thing is we can you know, try and mitigate the risks that we can based on benchmark technologies and the experience of our team. Um, and then always just you know, make sure we leave a buffer for new learnings and development. As you scale your technology, what are some non-obvious or unexpected challenges that you had to overcome to move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that example is a good one where um, because we have a system of multiple enzymes, one thing that we um, you didn't quite expect to be uh, significant that ended up being significant is sort of the um, intermediate products in the system and just making sure that we can fully utilize them in the next reaction um, so that they don't end up inhibiting a, an enzyme downstream or um, you're changing anything else about the conditions in our reactor. Um, and so that's really about tuning the amounts of enzyme we have in the system and maybe just making sure um, kind of the conditions, the buffers that we have um, are, um, they work with uh, the sort of intermediates that we have in our system. Um, so I think that that's one of the biggest things that we didn't realize would be so significant and uh, that's why it has been a focus for us over the last quarter and we've figured it out which is great <laughs> um, but it's always um, you know a learning process with R&D and um, we're just going to keep getting better and faster at it. Awesome. What is next for Ruby then? What's in the near horizon? Yes. Next for us is really um, you know thinking about that next scale of commercialization. So we validated kind of the first um, feasibility study with our pilot partners. Um, and we're working with brands and manufacturers. Um, manufacturers like Walmart, for example, they're one of our paid partners. And then on the brand side, like H&M, uh, et cetera, uh, big brands like that or ones that have um, sustainability goals like Reformation. Um, so through these pilots, what we're working towards is um, the next stage, really, now that we've validated the materials feasibility, um, some level of our reactor system and, and carbon performance with uh, low levels of CO2, like similar to flue gas, our next big milestone is um, really proving uh, at a prototyping level that this is a full drop in into industrial conditions and then also larger scale textile production. So what that looks like is we're going through these pilots with manufacturers where we're going to be testing their uh, exact flue gas in our system. We're going to be designing the integration system between our reactors that would go on site to their manufacturing facilities. So basically being able to you know, pipe flue gas directly into our system and then make cellulose continuously on site. Um, and then on the brand side, sort of uh, fully plug into the end garment production uh, steps. We can validate all the way to end garment and then a scaled up sort of system where uh, brands can just order the material from us and it just drops into their existing supply chains. 
Um, so we're sort of looking at this next level of um, sort of uh, industrial validation of our reactors being validated uh, at uh, manufacturing facility sites through gas all the way through uh, end product. And then also on the brand side, um, you know, really testing end to end in products and then scaling up with them as a part of their portfolio. Well, congratulations on your partnership with Walmart and Internet. Thank you. That's actually <laughs> exciting. How did you go about getting them excited and interested in working with you as mm-hmm. a startup? Yeah, I mean, we when we started the company, we tried to be incredibly focused on what the the value proposition needed to be for these brands and manufacturers, like what their real problem is and the kinds of solutions they need. And that's how we developed our technology um, so that throughout our whole product development process and creating this technology, we're fully aligned with what those partners need for this to be feasible. Um, And on the brand side, uh, it's a few key things. It's um, line of sight to price parity. Um, same or better quality and um, scalability, like drop in into existing supply chains or something that can easily be scalable to the level that they're producing at, uh, sort of with a line of sight timeline. Um, And then, of course, the sustainability factor. So um, carbon negative is something that really resonates with brands because they have these massive carbon reduction goals. And then on the manufacturer side, it's really things like the capex of your system, um, the ability to capture carbon and what the cost of that carbon capture looks like. Um, And then also, like, can they do anything interesting with the CO2 that improves their business? Um, So all of those things we aligned in building this technology so that it hits all of those things. And I think that's what you uniquely really resonated with these brand and manufacturing partners that they haven't been able to find. Uh, elsewhere and by um, we have these paid pilots early with industry partners that we can fully build up uh, with and partner with them through our scale-up journey. Um, so yeah, I think those key value props are really important to um, prioritize when developing the tech. Changing gear a little bit, what has been the most helpful advice you have received as a founder? I think there's there's a few pieces of advice, and I've ha- I've been lucky to have some really great advisors um, that have supported me through my founding journey, um, who were early investors and really believed in what we were doing. Um, I think one piece of advice is um, you know trying to find and support and be surrounded by the good people, like people you respect, admire, people who are passionate and um, you know, maybe they um, they don't have. If if you're hiring, for example, maybe they have super high initiative or all the the good factors that you're looking for, and maybe there's a little bit of a gap in skills or something. That's much better to add to your team, for example, than someone who uh, you're very unsure about their initiative and ability to contribute, but they have all the skills in the world. Um, that's just been something that like really look for uh, the good people who align with what you're building, who are willing to put in the work, who want to see you and company succeed. Um, and that's just 
you know, something that I think has been super helpful. And there's no need to work with people that you, you don't uh, sort of appreciate working with. Um, so it's kind of building the future that you want to see at your company and then also surrounding your company. Um, and I think that's been some really good advice to make sure that we are really specific about who joins our team and what kind of team we're trying to create and then who we surround ourselves with to try and build the most successful company possible. What culture are you trying to cultivate at, at Ruby as you build out your team? I think one of the biggest things that people point out about our culture is our emphasis on creativity and um, creative solutions. And I think that's one piece that's really important in attracting um, super highly talented, smart scientists, um, being able to be creative and bring that sort of scientific thinking to their jobs um, has really resonated with our team. Um, and it's also necessary because we're trying to do something so difficult that um, hasn't been done before. And we need all of this creative thinking, new ideas to get the unprecedented results that we're aiming to build here. Um, so I think that's one piece. And then the other one is a strong sense of ownership and responsibility. Um, you know, people at Ruby are, um, we, we sort of fully trust projects with project leaders to the point where, um, you know, of course, it's not like uh, anything about us micromanaging teammates, but even further, it's sort of like we ensure that we give the space to our teammates to fully lead projects, make decisions and bring in the right information to move a project forward as long as we're aligned on the big picture goals. And I think that really creates the sense of ownership that you'd need at a company like this where there's so many big challenges and you need people res feeling responsible and owning different parts of a really complex problem and just everyone doing what it takes to make it happen. Um, like whatever it takes to try and build something that's going to have a massive impact on the world. And I think those two things together uh, really build a powerful culture. You can really build enduring companies that create lasting impact in the world. Mm -hmm. So you do that. Totally. Last but not the least, is there anything we or our audience can help you? Oh, yeah. Well, if what you heard about Ruby was inspiring to you, um, would definitely encourage you to follow us on uh, our different platforms. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, <laughs> a bunch of different platforms where um, we're just trying to build community around this vision of symbiotic manufacturing and what the world can look like. Um, and you know we're always hiring. So definitely check out uh, our jobs page. And if you're an investor or someone interested in uh, you know, connecting with us, just please feel free to, uh, to reach out. Um, we'd love to chat with you to help build this future. And we need all the kinds of people and skills to make that happen uh, to scale a technology like this. What's the best way to, to reach you? Yeah, you can um, you know, just email me directly, actually, nika at ruby.earth or on LinkedIn. Feel free to message me there. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.